Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Python Community News, the show that brings the latest updates around the Python community. I am your host, Jay, and with me, as always, is the awesome co-host. I'm John. Hey, John. How's it going? Good. How you doing, Jay? Good. We've got we've got kind of a I don't want to say a, a meta topic because I don't think we're we're going to be bringing up meta at all. Um, but we we have a really good question around who is responsible for the, the, the things that we use in our day-to-day. And ultimately, are we okay with that? But before we do that, I think we have one bit of, of quick news. Um, the PSF is actually hiring. So um, if uh, you are in the community event space, uh, the PSF might need you. They're looking for a community events manager uh, we've, we've talked with some people recently from the PSF about all of the different events that they do that not only support like PyCon US, but some of the other things around there. Uh, John, uh, you do community events, like you do a big community event. Like what are, what are some of the big needs for a role that of like this magnitude? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do a community event that is significantly smaller than, than PyCon US, which is, you know, the PSF's kind of biggest, biggest event that this person will be contributing to. But, um, you know, a lot of it's going to be uh, all the behind the scenes stuff year round that people don't see that go into planning an event, right? So this is uh, making sure all the gears are turning <laughs> and uh, that, right, at the, at the event when, when everyone is right going to to check in, pick up their badge all the way through, right? We're, we're closing, closing down the event for the year, you know, sprints are wrapping up. Um, you know, there, there, there's a ton of work that goes on behind the scenes to make sure that those things happen smoothly um, to make sure that, you know, all the different uh, vendors uh, that are, that are involved in making one of these events come to life, um, you know, work together as they should uh, so, so there's, uh, putting on a conference like this is, is a pretty big production. Um, and, and so an events manager in that space would, uh, work on, you know, any and all aspects of it. Um, and, and the post here recommend, or, uh, also mentions that, uh, there are other, you know, PSF events throughout the year that, that this person would also contribute to. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this is the part of of python you know honestly that we want to expose more of you know showing people that there are there are jobs that kind of extend past the the lines of code that you might write in your day to day and you know honestly when you're dealing with a a project or you know as big as pycon like you don't necessarily need good python developers to put on pycon you need people who are skilled at dealing with contracts, people who are skilled with planning events and, and like coordinating these things. And if they happen to be in the Python community, that's a, that's a benefit too. But ultimately just like we would want, you know, we have skilled web developers, we have skilled data scientists, like the Python community needs skilled event planners and skilled, you know, legal writers and copywriters and things like that to, to really make the community as, I guess, as prominent as as it is. 
uh, especially when you're dealing with PyCon, which, you know, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. PyCon is not just the largest event, but it's also one of the largest sources of income for the PSF. Uh, so you really need to make sure that you can put on the most successful event possible. Yeah, and I mean to your to your point about um, right the the kinds of work that that go go into events like this. Um, right, I've 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 been in the situation of right, you know, I wanna I wanna start a a new event, and right, the first thing I'm gonna do is build a web framework so that I can host it. It's <laughs> Um, it's very tempting as someone who right works in that space, uh, but that's you know not not only is that um, a, a core competency you you don't necessarily need here, um, but but it's one that might even distract you. Right? Yeah. So uh, you know the the job of running an event like this at the end of the day um, should be pretty far removed. Uh, from from a lot of the uh, you know software development sides of things, even though it's an event about software development, um, right? Putting on the event is is event planning, which is a very very different process and and skill set than than building website. Yeah, um, yeah. So if you or someone you know is is looking for work and they have some you know event planning uh or an event planning background or some knowledge in that space then uh head over to python.org's website it is a blog post currently i think it actually might even be in their job board this is on the job board and it'll also be linked directly in the newsletter exactly which speaking of you can subscribe to that newsletter um just go to we really need a vanity link for that don't we um, there will be a vanity link eventually, but uh, for now, you can head over to uh, our website, which is pythoncommunitynews.com. And from there, there will be a link to the newsletter as well, where you can subscribe. Uh, moving on, you know, there there's some companies that deal with, with data and there are companies that deal with the data community. And it, apparently they're they're starting to partner together to get uh, a little bit more metrics on open source projects. And I say all that to say Anaconda is partnering with NumFocus and uh, Bitergia to bring community metrics to uh, all of the projects within the NumFocus umbrella. Uh, Bitergia is an analytics platform. They do analytics and charts and dashboards. So I, I don't I don't have any other correlation to other than something like a BI object, but for, you know, code and things like that. Um, But the team at Anaconda is helping to fund this partnership and bring more information around project health and security and transparency uh, across the, all the projects that NumFocus is a part of. And honestly, for, for this conversation, I mean, this is a, is a little bit of a, of a harder topic for me because I'm, I'm not a data scientist, nor do I pretend, well, I do pretend to be one from time to time, but I I have seen other companies out there that are focusing on giving, comp- giving metrics around open source projects. And I'm just wondering, like, John, do you have any insight to where, like, 
how some of these these metrics get used either by companies or you know vendors or people just wanting to make sure that they are making the right choice yeah i mean so this will come up a lot when you're talking about things like uh, selecting a new library to use for a you know a particular application within your product right so if you have um, you know a need for for one of these libraries uh, you're evaluating you know three five different options um, you'll you'll look at things like uh, the uh, right how actively maintained something is right if it hasn't seen an update in the past four years you may be you know, hesitant to to bring it on as a dependency because then that's something that now you may re, you you may be responsible for maintaining long term. Um, versus if some if a if a community is healthy right around a project and you are building, uh, you know, more and more on top of something that is widely used and uh, and has funding and response to you know security reports things like that. Um, that takes some of the, uh, the the worry about maintenance burden away, um, and I think also, uh, you know, this this ties back into a couple of things we've talked about uh, in in episodes maybe last month uh, around right the the federal government uh, in the U.S. Uh, looking at um, right security for open source projects that are mm. used by you know their their own services, right? And so, as um, as end users of uh, of of libraries require these sorts of metrics and and information around right the the health both right main, maintainability wise and security wise uh, of a project, um, whether those end users are right governments or companies or individuals um these are going to be more important things to be able to to say yeah we have this data we can we can show you uh or right um so one way or another you're going to uh want to be able to answer these questions if your if your goal is to uh you know make make your libraries available for use by those sorts of people and I mean, to me, there is a second part of that too, which uh, we will talk probably a lot more about in the next topic, which is like funding. Like the government, at least the US government, has a history of throwing money at the problem, even when the problem isn't necessarily fully understood. Um, but in order to qualify for catching that money being thrown, there are a lot of things that you have to do. There are a lot of things that you have to show. And this could be a way to starting to codify some of those things. You know, I, I know that like, even when it comes to like digital privacy and things like that, there are things that you have, you are on the hook for. If, if someone says, you know, you know, the right to be forgotten, you know, that's a thing I want, I want to be forgotten. Like you have to provide receipts of like, Hey, here are the records showing that, we had your data, we did this thing, and now the data is not there anymore. I'm not saying that that's necessarily what this is, but what I think it is, is, is starting to put in place around, you know, when it talks about project health and security, okay, how many of those vulnerabilities, how many of those CVEs, you know, we talked about last week, 
you know, there are thousands of proof of concepts that are malicious in nature. Like the, the code itself is malicious and it's out in the public and people know about it, but there's not enough people to triage all of the malicious objects, let alone they're fighting a moving target. So, you know, these things are coming in, you know, as, as they're solving problems, new ones are coming in. So like, if you have reporting that says, here's an active list of all of the things that this particular project has wrong with it or right with it, then that gives people kind of a marker that they can say, all right, hey, well, according to this standard, according to this report, we are 80% or 90% or whatever, you know, safe or easy to use. And we now know where we need to improve. But you can't you can't even get that without having the first part, which is the information itself. Yeah. And and I, I guess the other question I have here is, um, right, there, there's a number of projects uh, that are listed that are involved in this particular partnership, but, uh, and and I think those are pretty much everything on the, under the NumFocus umbrella, right? Yeah. Um, but what kinds of projects should we expect to see looking for, for uh, adopting metrics like these? I, I mean, I genuinely think that any open source project should have the ability to adopt the standards that are being presented here. I don't know, again, I don't have enough knowledge of what they're doing with NumFocus and Baturgia to say like, here's the comprehensive list. I hope that they make that information public. I mean, it sounds like it says, you know, private access to Baturgia analytics to build custom charts and dashboards. So it doesn't sound like they're trying to make that stuff public, but it's it's saying with those metrics, developers can better understand the health of projects. So my, my hope is that at some point, at least what they're calculating will be available to the public. And I I hope that, you know, that finds its way to major version control platforms. I hope, you know, I I know of a, a friend that's working on a project called Open Source that is kind of doing this thing, this very thing of like, making it easier for people to understand what is going on with an open source project, but they're doing it from the perspective of encouraging new contributions to these projects. But I could also see there being a money kind of positioning there to be like, yeah, but companies could also use this information to make right decisions as well. Um, so my hope is to see that, you know, open source projects, including ones that you and I maintain, will get to take advantage of some of the findings that come out of these types of big data research projects. All right, let's move on. I am, I am excited about this conversation. Um, folks, John and I often agree in different ways. So I'm always looking forward to hearing, hearing about how he agree, how he agrees with me in many cases, but, um, over in JavaScript world, um, there was an announcement that the company Remix, um, which makes their their also named product, uh, which is a JavaScript framework that's built around React Router, um, is getting acquired by Shopify. And when I saw this, I mean, other than the fact that I, I you know, there's there's a, a little bit of like I know some of the people that work at Remix, um, I am, 
you know, super excited for them because I get to see that, you know, hey, they're taken care of and all those good things. However, there have been a lot of acquisitions in the news lately. Um, some that are, uh, I think the tech world would say is very polarizing. Um, some people are running, some people are, you know, switching platforms and doing things. Uh, the difference here is, in many ways, those are not open source platforms. Uh, in this case, Remix was. It was a company that was built around this open source product. And we see this all the time in the JavaScript world, where you have companies that are built around open source products. Uh, full disclosure, I, I work for a company that owns open source products. Um, I also worked for a company that was built based off of an open source product. Um, so John, I want to I want to pose the question to you. Who owns open source? I do. Okay. Enough said. We'll see you next yeah, week. There we go. All right. uh, <laughs> so it's a, it's an interesting question um which I think requires more of a definition of uh, of what you mean when you say own because there are um, a bunch of different ways you can own code. Uh, and the, the answer to that question, I think really depends on what your, uh, what your concern is when you ask it. Um, right. So, uh, in, in terms of right, this particular project, um, you know, I, so I don't, I don't do a ton of JavaScript. Uh, I haven't used remix. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most of the uh, code that that goes into Remix, the uh, you know the, the the library, has been written by uh, you know employees of Remix, the company. Um, I think that's safe think argument. It's yeah. Probably probably fair argument there. Yeah, um, but uh, if it's out there, you know, with an open source license. Uh, even if those licensing terms change, um, right, that's not retroactive. Yeah. Uh, so, so if something's been released as 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 an open source, um, open source library, ownership is really a, a, a fuzzy question there in terms of like, uh, I can still use this, right? Even if even if the terms of of the use for newer versions of these libraries have changed. Um, you know, I, I may be able to use and, and right, fork and modify, you know, the, the last version of the, uh, the, the library that was released under the license that I like. Hmm. You know, I, I was thinking about this earlier from like the perspective of, you know, most of the companies that I've worked with now are publicly traded companies. Who owns those companies? I think the big argument would be the shareholders own the own the company. Um, now, again, I don't I don't know economics. I know someone in the chat that does know a lot about economics, um, so feel free to to correct me <laughs> in in any way there. But the the idea of shareholdering a open source product is something that I feel is has been very polarizing as of late. Because I mean, if we if we look at just the perspective of licensing, if 
a product is available for people to use freely and a company builds a model off of that product without giving back to the original company who now owns that <laughs> like and and there's an argument about that enough to the point where people will change their licensing model and be like well no we're not being benefited from this development that's being made or they're benefiting from the development that we're making without contributing back to it. And, you know, I bring this up as a topic mostly because I feel like the Python community has been shielded from this a lot. But when you look at like how our largest packages are set up, like one, we you know, we talk about like NumFocus who, who sponsors a bunch of projects. We have, you know, a company like Anaconda who has their own version of packaging and like dependency management and things. And then you also have the fact that those two kind of work together a lot to build this this data community and to kind of foster it. And then all of a sudden at PyCon, Anaconda announces PyScript which is like, oh, hey, here's this open source product that like is actively on the web. It is bringing Python to the web. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, so this this to me seems more like a JavaScript model of business than a Python model of business. Because when I think of Python models of business, I think of Python, the PSF, Django, and then like the DSF. And even with some of the smaller projects, you have you know, this idea for where an organization can be set up around protecting, if it's a community, the the property and the intellectual rights of the community. But if it's a product, it's kind of the same thing. You know, we have a steering council that helps make those decisions. We have a pet process. It, a lot of that stuff goes into place protecting Python. But do those same things exist for the smaller projects? And And I say smaller as in like not the main language because... Flask is the most widely used Python web framework on the planet for Python yeah, in Python. And it is ultimately maintained by one person. Well, yeah. So I think that's why I was saying it, de it depends on what you mean when you ask who owns this, because when I hear that question, I think, right, what's your, what's your concern? What answer are you hoping for? <laughs> uh, because it's not not likely that uh, that the uh, you know the next step there is I want to buy it. Um, I, I mean, you know, hey, that's kind of what's kicking off this conversation to begin with. But yes. um, for for the record, I did ask the owner of Flask online earlier how much I could pay to own Flask, and he told me not enough. So I think I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I think the the you know the more interesting bit about that question is, um, right, going back to the idea of like community health metrics for an open source project is uh, how does this continue operating right because ultimately a lot of 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 the time your uh, your source code is kind of a liability. Right, it's a yeah. it's a thing that you have to keep up. It's, uh, you know, there's always going to be CVEs. Uh, there are going to be you know new releases of various different, um, you know, 
underlying libraries that your your code depends on that you want to keep up to date with. And if all of that goes away, you know, uh, a maintainer retires, gets bored, uh, you know, gets a gets a job doing something that is not related to to the framework they work on. Um, you know, that maintenance burden then becomes your maintenance burden um, or just a a liability in general. So we have a really good question in the chat, and I'm going to also pose this to the greater chat. So if you're if you're watching us live on YouTube or on Twitch or LinkedIn, like chime in because I, I want to know this as well. You know, what does ownership bring? Like, is it is it control? Like, why is it important to understand like who is the owner in this case? Is it control? Is it rights? Um, I would also throw like exclusivity into it as well. Um, I, I saw earlier someone was talking about a, a social network um, that specifically states that they don't operate in certain countries uh, because of, you know, whether it's data control rights, privacy rights, you know, geopolitical rights. Um, Marietta, who, you know, hey, Marietta, uh, Marietta is a you know, very influential person in the Python community and is a part of, you know, the core dev team. He mentions like influence and power. So does the does the Python Steering Council own Python? Like like I and, and I'm asking these questions because I I genuinely wonder who gets the final say when someone says we wanna we want, you know, big company here wants to control this product. Yeah, I mean I think Right. I'm also going to mention that uh, earlier today, someone said to me, uh, congratulations, the prize for winning the cake eating contest is more cake. Uh, so, you know, influence and power is not not the only thing that comes with uh, w w with maintenance there. Um, right. Control is a uh, right. Uh, a blessing and a curse. Right. Because uh, when when you're maintaining something that a lot of people depend on. Uh, you know, you, you, you do have to think about things in a different way that is not just like, okay, I'm going to, I feel like making these changes today and now I've rewritten it and, and it, and it doesn't, uh, you know, now you've got, now you're dealing with essentially customer support, but your customers are people who use your stuff for free. Um, and, and I've heard they have the most complaints <laughs> too. Yeah. And so, uh, but, but in, in terms of right, who owns Python, a lot of people have contributed to uh, to to C Python, um, right? And um, I, you know, this is a good question. I don't actually know if if, if C Python has a uh, like a contributor license agreement, um, so I don't know. And maybe somebody in the chat can uh, uh, can can provide some insight there. But I don't know if you adding you know a piece of code to C Python. Uh, right, relinquishes control. Um, so, so you know who who owns it? Maybe, uh, yeah. So, so who owns it? Maybe like the Python Software Foundation itself. Um, who controls it? Right, that's like the 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 steering council and um, you know the the various folks on different. Um, uh, blanking on a word here, but like subcommittees that deal with 
things like packaging and security and and, and all of the kind of specialties that uh, that that end up within a, a code base as large as Python's. Yeah, and I mean, you also get to to kind of look at the when we talk about control. I mean, I'm looking at this from the JavaScript standpoint of like, you have a company that is able to make money in order to develop this thing that other companies feel they will need. Or they have some product that they built that is the money-making arm, but is fundamentally reliant on this open source technology that maybe they also created. I look at um, Vercel as kind of a good example of that, of like they have this whole like Vercel Vercel platform but then they also have like Next.js, which is kind of this thing that, you know, they've developed. And I think a lot of that was probably to make the platform. Um, and then we also look at things like like Netlify and, you know, these companies that create tools for you to use and even put your products on. So then do you own your your IP, like if 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 I, if we put our website on Netlify, which we don't, our our site is hosted uh, through like GitHub Actions and all this other GitHub pages or whatever. But I guess we could say the same thing. Does does GitHub own our site? Do we own our site? Do who owns the code in which we we put on there? Like, I, I I don't know the answer to that because what I do know is that we can we have some power right now to say. Well, if we don't like how GitHub is hosting it, we can put it on, you know, Python anywhere. We can put it on Netlify. Or we could we could just host it ourselves and like, you know, put it on some laptop that's just always on. We probably will not do that. Uh, but there is also a shared ownership in in looking at like what Heroku did with, or I guess what Heroku's doing with getting a giving a, you know getting rid of their free tier, regardless of whether you owned it or not, you can't do anything with that code on Heroku without paying Heroku. So do you own it or does Heroku own it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a common thing you'll hear uh, about not building a business based on someone else's business, right? And and this is a an issue that comes up in the world of like, uh, you know, anyone that has like uh, Monopoly or uh, you know, anything, anything approaching that, right. You become essentially, uh, beholden to whatever they decide, uh, to change about their platform at any given time. Uh, so for, for our site, right. For Python community news.com, it's just, it's just static files. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, right. So it's, it's served by GitHub pages. Um, but I, Really quick, it's it's served using a static site generator that you and I have worked on. Well, I was I was getting there. Okay, okay. <laughs> Give me a moment, Jay. <laughs> uh, so so it's it's static files that that are served by GitHub Pages, um, and these are uh, right. This this is a thing that uh, you asked the question: Does GitHub own this? They very much do not, and they do not want to, right? Because yeah. there are implications when uh, when a web provider does own something right and so there's like safe harbor laws that yeah. are involved in like if we post something we're not speaking for github and it's not github's content they don't want any part of that 
And um, then, and if they chose to take us down because we wrote it, there is a possible argument of violation of safe harbor, which is where we get yeah. into the news of, you know, sites that people may not necessarily agree with, you know, and I mean, I don't agree with a lot of it, but the argument is like, we'll take them down, take them down. And they're like, you know, until they violate the law, we kind of can't. But I mean, the answer is like, you can, it just sets precedence over who actually has control. Yeah. But, and so at the end of the day though, if, if we uh, decided that GitHub pages wasn't, wasn't the right fit for us, we would pick up our site and move it elsewhere. And as you, you mentioned earlier, um, this is built on a static site generator that, that you created called render engine that uh, allows us to essentially take, um, you know, our, our source files and output uh, some flat HTML and upload them anywhere. Uh, and so that can, that can be GitHub pages, GitLab pages, like you said, a laptop in a closet. Um, it can be, uh, you know, any, any web host that's, com that's capable of, of serving up HTML. Uh, we, we can put that, uh, that, that, that site on and right. If, you know, someday when, when someone says, Jay, I want to buy your static site generator from you. Um, and, and then changes it. So our, our, our site no longer works and can't render our, uh, you know, our, our, our archive anymore. Um, we can still pick that up, move it to a different static site generator. So, um, that is where I think a lot of this question about ownership comes from, yeah. right? Because, uh, you know, my worry when, when, when something changes hands is isn't necessarily like, well, uh, you know, now the person I was paying for a service before, uh, you know, is no longer that same entity. It, mm -hmm. you know, as, as I'm, as I'm depending on this as part of like building my business, uh, my worry is more around the idea of, well, does this introduce any risk for me? Uh, is this thing likely to, uh, change in a way that makes it so I can no longer operate. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is where you hear about everybody talking about multi-cloud and all of these other um, approaches to essentially de-risk any uh, and any of your components, you can switch between them. Um, and, you know, it's often a lot easier said than done. I, I think it's interesting because you, you said, you know, it's the static site generator that I built. Like, I'm not the only contributor. Like, you've you've contributed to it. Um, I've, I've had other people contribute to it in the past, but it's still looked at as, like, it is my project. And there's, there's a book and I don't have the book on me. Um, that's like about open source that, that kind of talks about this idea of like, there are four types of open source projects. You have like toys, which is what I would put, you know, render engine. It is something that I built to solve a purpose, to solve a problem that I had. And then I started using it and making money off of using it. And I was like, Hey, this is great. I can, I can adapt that a little bit. Um, and then, you have like stadiums, which are a handful of people working on a massive project. Um, and I would put something like Flask into that. I would almost even put something like, uh, you know, Python into, into that, like for the number of people that use it versus the people who maintain it. 
um, there it's very lopsided. And then you have like these, these projects that are kind of mini to mini relationships uh, where it's like a bunch of people are working on it and a bunch of people are, you know, using it. Um, and then you have like clubs, which are, you know, a lot of people, you know, using it and a lot of, or I guess a few people working on it. it the read the book. I will, I will find the book and throw it in somewhere. But like the, I wouldn't, I would have said that render engine is the, 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 like, I mean, I guess I would have said it is my, my project. So if I said who owns that, I guess I would say that I did because at the end of the day, like, that's mostly because the repo is in my name. <laughs> like if I shut down the repo, like I have, I guess I have all of the control. Like I have the the code. I mean, I guess someone could fork the code and say they're going to go build it on their own. But then like, un- unless they get a larger following than I do on the project, which I mean, I don't think would be that hard, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's my project. But I, I look at larger projects like, like Django, you know, one of the one of the comments that came up uh, recently uh, for the DSF is that they are actively like I think today is the last day to submit for the DSF board nomination. So again, if you know somebody that might be interested in in serving on a board, like today's the day. But the way that their bylaws are set up, they have term limits. So they have to hire, like they have to quote unquote hire, they have to nominate people to come in to be the guardians of that project. And it's not to say that if they don't, then, you know, the project goes away, but the control of how that project is maintained fundamentally changes. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Because when I think of like what Python projects are most likely to to become the next JavaScript web framework to get acquired by some big company. I do think about the web frameworks that these million and billion dollar companies use. And, you know, the developers aren't making that money. So at the end of the day, if if you know a large company said, I want to buy Django, here's fifteen billion dollars, or, you know, I'm gonna pull a random number there, like forty, you know, forty two billion dollars or whatever, like that's a very hard question if all of the control is in the hands of one person. If you have a feder- if you have a foundation and you know you have a bunch of people and there's a process and you have to go through all those things, even if you want to do that, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder for Python to become a you know an Amazon or Microsoft or Google property because you can't just say, here's a blank check. We now own this. Um, I'm pretty sure all of the major companies would have tried by now. Um, but when it is just one person or 10 people, five people, 10 people, they don't even have to buy you. They just have to hire you. Congratulations. We've hired you. Now we have all the influence of the project. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not always that easy because uh, project maintainers, um, don't necessarily want to just kind of sell away, right? What their vision for a project is. Um, but, but you're right. There, there are, uh, you know, potential issues with an open source project, uh, 
I'm, I'm a lot less worried about an open source project getting picked up by a company and then right fundamentally changed into something else than uh, you know someone gets someone gets hired to do a job that right just isn't that project and yeah. now they're busy because um, I think that's one of the 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 main um, you know sorts of weaknesses in, in in these models that are right i am i am one person that maintains a project is anytime i have something going on in life uh you know now that project takes a back seat yeah i definitely have i i feel that like that is that is my current life status is like i'm working on all of these other things i have these things that i built that i would love to do more work on but unfortunately they don't they don't they don't make enough so we we focus over here and you know, we we talk about that in even in like how do core developers work on Python? Like you have many of the developers who are basically working on it in their off time and nights and weekends. You have another set of developers who might be allowed to work on it one day a week from their employer. And then you have a, a small handful of people that are able to focus on it full time and get a paycheck from their their employer. And usually their names, their last names in with like Van Rossum. And it's like, okay, hey, you know, you made the language like, okay, foster it. But and then now he has a team like there's a team at Microsoft that does this. And I have an article about that and all that stuff. But like the that is very much a rarity in all of open source development. Like usually if someone is working on a project full time, it is because they've received enough funding that they can continue to focus on it full time. And I don't even know how many of those people are actually doing that. Like most of the the core developers of projects that I know also have a day job. Yeah, I think there are also some uh, some folks left out of that list, which are right the Python uh, developer in residence, yeah, position, um, which uh, you know looks very similar to the uh, Django fellowship positions. Yeah, so people who who are right, paid by the foundations that that are ultimately responsible for maintaining these projects to actually like really spend, uh, you know, paid employment time on. Uh, on on continuing the the improvements uh, and and continuing to 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 grow the language and the framework, because um, yeah. you know I th I think you look at right you look at the article you mentioned where right hey here's a bunch of people working on uh, on on Python and look at all of these performance improvements we've gotten well uh, you know I'm I'm not all that surprised to hear that when you uh, get a, a well-staffed group together and and pay them to to build something they want to improve. Uh, you you get good results out of it, right? Um, yeah. One of the uh, you know one one of the conversations uh, I've I've had with people a lot over the years is like the the speed of JavaScript, right? Um, mm. JavaScript <laughs> is or Node, right? Um, on the back end, right? Is, is relatively performant um which is i i would say definitely due to just the sheer amount of resources that have been poured into its development 
Yeah. Um, and and not something inherent to the language itself. And right, you you, you see a lot of those things with with the uh, 3.11 release and the upcoming um, uh, you know plans for 3.12. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, in in terms of uh, to kind of circle back to your your opening point, um, right? The the Python community, I think, does trend more toward right like foundation models and uh and um right uh the the python software foundation has its fiscal sponsorship program to to help right projects and 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 conferences um you know work without necessarily building up all of that um legal structure that would be necessary in order to accept money um while protecting yourself from right uh, just doing it as as a person um and you know it 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 takes a lot of uh you know money time and energy in order to actually make those things happen right the the django software foundation and the python software foundation these things don't just like magically come into existence right uh, they, they've been built up over years and decades um, and and so, right? If you if you want to see like more stuff like that continue and 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 more of this code going into kind of like the public good, uh, I think contributing there, whether it's like you said by uh, self nominating to to serve on a board or or you know donating to uh, you know their their fundraising campaigns throughout the year, things like that. Um, it. It, it does help kind of keep the ownership more in the public than it is private. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say, I, I think, yeah, to wrap this up really well, I mean, the, the answer is like a lot, you know, it depends. But in many cases, there's there's like a balance of ownership. And that's, that's why I kind of did like that, you know, shareholder model. Like, okay, if all of the power is nested in like one person, then that person has the ability to make all the decisions. If by design, the power is distributed across the platform, as long as everybody is doing their part, it becomes a lot harder to make any big swinging decision. But ultimately, those systems are harder to maintain, at least logistically, like, I mean, the PSF does elections every year. And, you know, John, I know that we've we've talked a lot about this um, in your conference chats, uh, is that people can't do these things forever. And whether it's writing code, whether it's organizing an event, people cannot do it 24-7 and they can't do it for years and years and years on end unless it makes sense for them to. And even then, like, I, I would I would dare say I don't at least I hope that you know you know John you're you're not like fifty years down the road still sitting there being like I really wonder like how Pi Gotham is going to you know I wonder how they're going to make sure they have food this year like this is this is not a thing that you know I hope for you but there is always an opportunity for people to give up some of their ownership and to pass it on to someone else. And 
you know, if there was a call to action for any of this, it's like if if there's a project that you rely on, whether it's, you know, whether you is the, the big company you or whether you is the just you, it's like support those developers, support them by helping to triage issues, support them financially if you can. Um, but ultimately, the more that you support them, the more that you will have a small ownership of that thing. Now, obviously, I can't promise you that, you know, you file a couple of bugs and now you're like co-owner of Python. That's not that's not how that works. But I've had the privilege of talking to a lot of people that have all said the same thing. I started off reading issues and answering them. And then one day someone said, well, what if we just give you commit permissions? And it's it's amazing at how a little bit of effort gives you access and a little bit of ownership to a project that now you are responsible for in some ways. And when the question comes up of, hey, this person wants to sell this thing or this person wants to, you know, give up on it, you now have a little bit of a say in that. Uh, So all that to be said, you know, again, whether it's Python, whether it's Django or, or Flask or whatever you're using, you know, support those projects that that you've come to rely on. Uh, make sure that you're supporting the maintainers of those projects. Like I said, it doesn't have to be financially, but it certainly can be. And you know, at the end of the day, like if if a company like I I wouldn't say that a company owning an open source project is necessarily a bad thing. Again, I've I've made my entire tech career working for companies that own that own open source properties. Well, one of them was open source and then they changed their license, but um, which is a whole another conversation. But all, all that to say, if you don't like who could potentially own it, then the only thing that you can do is work to become a little bit of the owner yourself. John, we got a couple of conferences coming up. We do. Uh, yeah. I think kind of uh... excited about this. Uh, the first one, uh, kind of kind of a big one. Most people know about this, but it is uh, PyCon. Um, we talked about PyCon happening, but ultimately, recently, they, they said that they, they might need some help. Yeah, so PyCon US um, has put up a, a call for volunteers for, um, I, I think this post is specifically about uh, reviewing calls for proposals. Um, so, and on that note, the, the call for proposals for, uh, PyCon US 2023 is open right now, uh, for at least a few more weeks. Uh, but, uh, the, the program committee is going to be reviewing, uh, all of those proposals in order to actually select what gets presented at PyCon US 2023 and then, and then build out, uh, you know, the schedule for, for the event. Uh, if you want to be part of that, uh, check out this blog post. Uh, and and get an idea of you know what what it's like to actually contribute to an event like this. Um, you know, I I've done this for a number of conferences. Um, it's a super fun experience. Uh, it, it can be a lot of work. Um, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. There there are a lot of proposals that get sent into a, a conference like Icon US, and so um, you know if if you have uh, 
you know, if if you want a, a hand in kind of uh, helping shape what what gets presented in 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 the following year, um, you know, take a look at that blog post. And if there are other ways you want to get involved in in running PyCon US or other conferences, um, you know, there there's some links in there that will that will help you out. Yeah, we also have another organization that is also looking for some volunteers as well. Uh, and that is uh, JupyterCon. Um, they're also looking for some reviewers as well. Um, in 2020, they had over a thousand submissions. Uh, this upcoming year is in Paris. Uh, the deadline for that is December 15th for the CFP. But they're going to be looking for some people to actually review some of these CFPs. Uh, and, and they're asking for people, you know, you can also choose which tracks you feel most comfortable, you know, helping out in and, and working in. So kind of the same thing. Uh, you've got, you know, big, a big industry. I know the, the data science community is, is massive. Jupiter it has, you know, really made the data science community or at least the idea of writing code more accessible to folks in the data community. Um, so I would, I would highly encourage if, if you're in that space, if you have some knowledge in that space and, or you just want to help make that event as good as it can possibly be, then you can go in and sign up. And again, we're going to have all the links to these in the show notes and in the description, uh, on the YouTube channel, as well as in the podcast and newsletter. Uh, and lastly, we have Python Ireland, which, um, this is, this is interesting to me because I went to EuroPython, which was also in Ireland. So I was like, oh, awesome. Um, but this is this is kind of the smaller event that's focused mostly on uh, folks in the in the aisles themselves. And if you are in that area, if you're nearby and you want to you want to support them, they're going to be at the Radisson in Dublin. So be sure to go ahead and give them a reach out to and get your ticket tickets. Um, well, I guess I'm not going to say tickets are almost like not sold out, but like the conference is happening next week. So you're running out of time to to get them. But uh, John, I think that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, I think we had a couple of, of things that we wanted to tell people. Of course, as always, if you have a topic that you want us to cover, or if you're wondering about, hey, how come we didn't talk about that other topic? Um, you can you can tell us. You can go to our GitHub repo. Uh, we have an organization that's set up, and we have a topics repo that you can go in and submit the topics that you want to hear. We actually had a couple this week that you know we're we're saving them. There's still a little bit more more information that needs to be gathered uh, before we can talk about them too much. But uh, we always appreciate it when people from the community help, and it also helps us a ton because you know both of us are are doing things during the week and. Unfortunately, we can't hear about everything that happens. Um, so whenever you see something that's happening in your area or your area of expertise, share it with us by going to github.com slash python dash community dash news, um, then slash topics and file that issue. Uh, but also make sure that you're checking out if you've, if you've enjoyed the content here, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, you can also subscribe to the newsletter. And we also have this as a podcast available to you. If you're listening on the podcast, hi, how are you doing? Um, but we also do a, a community brief. John, you're really good at explaining the brief, so I'm going to kick that over to you. Yeah, so the Python, uh, Python Community News Weekly Brief is uh, under five minutes. 
it's just the facts about uh, about all the news that happened this week. So if you're tired of listening listening to us drone on uh, for for this hour, uh, you want to just know what happened. I got places to be. Go go subscribe to the podcast. We have a weekly brief that comes out um, uh, be out uh, later today or tomorrow if you're listening on a live stream, uh, and uh, that that will give you kind of the headlines. All the content you'll, that you'll get from the newsletter, just in podcast form. And of course, if you forget about any of this stuff, uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and YouTube. We're both at Pi Community News. Um, YouTube is we have the handle. It's like YouTube.com/slash at Pi Community News. Um, that's a new thing that they rolled out. Um, you can also just search Python Community News on YouTube and find most of our our content there. Uh, and of course, we're still on Twitter. Uh, I know a lot of people are saying for now. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff happening there, but we're on Twitter for now. Um, and if anything changes, you can find all of this information at pythoncommunitynews.com. But uh, John, am I am I missing anything? I think that's that's all for this week. So I've been John, and I'm Jay, and this has been the Python Community News. <laughs>